Praise the Lord. You are listening to Scripture Unleashed. Hi, and welcome to Scripture Unleashed. I'm Anthony, joined with Joe. Hello. Jacob. Hey. And Seth. Hi. And if you're not aware, Scripture Unleashed is a compliment podcast to go along with the Bread Reading Program. In this episode, we will go through Nehemiah chapter 3 through 13, Esther 1 through 10, Titus 1 through 3, the book of Philemon, Job 1 through 12, and Psalm 78 through 84. Please remember, if your pastor teaches on topics of conviction differently than what you hear in today's episode, be sure to listen to your pastor. Okay, guys, right away, let's go ahead and we're going to jump over to the book of Nehemiah. Brother Jacob, you have an overview. Yeah, so the book of Nehemiah, actually, we mentioned this before, it comes after the book of Esther. It is actually one one of the, yeah, chronologically, it is one of the last written books. Believed why it's here where it is in scripture is that it was actually written at the same time and by the same person as who wrote Ezra. But Nehemiah is basically all about the life of Nehemiah or about his ministry that he did, his burden for Jerusalem, his burden to fix the walls. There's several interesting points in the book of Nehemiah. For one thing, when everybody works together, they actually finish this massive project of building the walls in 52 days is actually an amazing feat that we see here. Uh, We see Nehemiah's wisdom and his stoutness when it comes to dealing with the enemy and how he would not literally and figuratively lower himself to their level. He wouldn't come down to them because he was, as in his words, doing a great work. Really, you can learn a lot from Nehemiah. You can learn a lot from his perseverance. You can learn a lot from his passion. There's quite a bit of good stuff here in Nehemiah. One thing which I see that I have the the next note here, so to just jump right into that. One thing that's interesting is Nehemiah's call, which sounds kind of silly to say that, you know, it was his call because we don't have an audible voice of God in this narrative telling him to go and to do that. But Nehemiah, upon hearing the trouble that Jerusalem is in, upon hearing that the walls are destroyed and that there's no way of protection Mm -hmm. for the people, he gets this intense burden for Jerusalem. He'd never been there, to my understanding. He had never been to Jerusalem. He was born in captivity. And so he'd never been there, but his burden for his people became so great that he, he fasted, he prayed. For several, in fact, um, if you look between chapters one and two, uh, nearly four months pass between the time that he prays the prayer at the end of chapter one and the time that he is brought before the king in chapter two. Now, whether that's because he had some, there was like a time off, you know, they like swapped in and out cupbearers. I'm not entirely sure why. But there was four month period between the time when he did this and the time that the king noticed that he was sad. But it's interesting how his response to the call was. His response to the call wasn't just that he jumped right on it. You know, we we see this in scripture a lot that when somebody's called like David, he still had a time of of testing and trial and growth that he had to go to before he could reach what it was that he was supposed to be in. The same thing with Nehemiah here. Granted, it's only four months rather than several years like David. But Nehemiah had a time of prayer and fasting in which he needed to be prepared to do the work that he was being called to do. Yes. Yeah, I like how you pointed out that when he was so burdened, it became his passion. Mm -hmm. But when Nehemiah made up the decision that he was going to do something about it, he didn't just run back there haphazardly, but he... He spent time in prayer. He fasted. Mm-hmm. He subjected himself to maybe what his personal feelings were about it. And he subjected that under the will of God. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate that about Nehemiah. Brother Joe, why don't you talk about the great work that Nehemiah did? Yeah, of course, Nehemiah's burden was to re- rebuild the wall around the city of Jerusalem, which, you know, just kind of bouncing off of what Jacob said, you know, Nehemiah did not hear an audible voice from God to go build this wall, but uh, the burden in his heart, uh, which was, uh, which he got the burden by just exposure, 
or just being aware of the need, you know, just hearing about the great need that Jerusalem had for this wall, just bred this, you know, huge burden in Nehemiah's heart to go build the wall. And so eventually, you know, they, they got started on the wall, but there were some people in Nehemiah chapter six that were the enemies of, of the Jews, really. And they heard about the, the wall that was being built. Here, I'll just read it, Nehemiah chapter 6. Now it came to pass when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arabian, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left therein, though at that time I had not set up the doors upon the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem said unto me, saying, Come, let us meet together in some of the villages in the plain of Ono, but they thought to do me mischief. Mm-hmm. And I sent messengers unto them, saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? That just kind of stuck out to me. You know, Nehemiah was doing a great work here and, and you know, what he was burdened to do. And, and I, you know, I think we could parallel this to our lives as Christians and, and you know, maybe ministry, whatever form of ministry that that you listeners are doing, you know, whether it's public preaching, you know, Bible studies, or just doing work around the church, or, you know, just doing a work for God in your community. You know, sometimes maybe the enemy, which in this case, in our case, would be the, um, the enemy of our soul, the devil, you know, might try to throw a snare to capture, or, you know, to, to trap you a little bit that stops you from doing your work. It could be a distraction, uh, which, in, which you know, most likely would be some sort of distraction where it could be, it could be a lot of things, mm-hmm. but it could be, you know, sometimes just getting caught up in, you know, just interpersonal drama really can distract you from doing the work of God mm-hmm. or entertainment or whatever mm-hmm. it may be, you know, it can just really distract you from, from doing the work that God called you to do, whether it was through, uh, you know, whether you felt called to do or whether your calling just came from the, there's some things that we're called to do. They're just in the Bible. You know, it's not, it's not mm-hmm. like we have to get a special calling for it. They're just in the Bible. Like, you know, just being a, just being an everyday Christian and, and witnessing to people. That's not, you know, that's something we're called to do just from, from reading the Bible. You should get that calling. But anyway, so don't let the devil, the enemy, don't let him distract you, trip you up. Our answer needs to be like Nehemiah's was, hey, I'm doing a great work up on this wall. I'm not coming mm-hmm. down. Why should the work cease while I come down to you? Just don't yeah. go down to that level. Don't play in that ball field. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, you know, it's it's something kind of interesting is, and as you were talking about it, I started to think, you know, we never see like the devil when he tries to distract us more often than not he'll use somebody around us and we generally like in scripture we never really see the devil being the one you know satan we don't see him being the one now we know he's behind it right but we don't see him specifically standing out you know and and that's something that we need to understand is that a lot of times the adversary of our soul uses our friends, our family, they use, you know, and not, not to say, you know, like they they're friends, the devil. Yeah. You know, but, but, you know, we're all human. We have, you know, even, even the most devout Christian has a time of, of trial where they are tempted to do something wrong and sometimes they fall. And so, you know, Satan will use that to then affect other people. And it's just interesting to me, though, like in Nehemiah, right, you know, we, we, you know, God is mentioned, but Satan's never mentioned. We notice that the adversary are the Samaritans. Mm-hmm. The adversaries are those men around them that are trying to stop the work. As we go into Esther here in a little bit, God isn't even mentioned, but we still see that man is the enemy put here. Now, yes, this man in, in Esther, Haman, he is manipulated, I would say, by the devil to do what it is that he's doing. But it's still the outward, and we don't really. I, I, am I making sense? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. it's the outward things that we see, and they get recorded down. It's not so much the enemy himself trying, like he's not on the forefront. He's sending other people out trying to do the his work. If that, if oh that yeah, makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Other things, and or even just situations that come up that. You know, maybe don't even really have much to do with people. I mean, it, 
you know, it could mm-hmm. be, I think a great distraction is just, you know, media. That's, mm-hmm. you know, I think yeah. that's a huge one. Like don't stop the great work to, don't let social media stop the great work. Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, entertainment. Yeah. I would argue, especially in our day, which is really, a, it, it is people, as Jacob's saying, it's people that are like, oh, we need this, this, you know, website, we need this website and we, and then they, you know, pull, suck people in, they entice people into their social media platform. And so in the end, yeah, it's, you know, it, it, social media is, is this people device, you know, created right. by people, but right. ultimately mm-hmm. under the guide of Satan to distract. And, and it's not just social media work. I mean, life, you know, can be this distraction from the great work, you know, mm-hmm. and, right. uh, yeah. and just, just the, the enemy around. If you read through, you know, like, through the Nehemiah, you know, I don't know how your, your Bibles, you know, the titles are in it, but I've got several that'll say, you know, opposition by anger, opposition by discouraged brethren, opposition by greed and heartlessness, yeah. uh, opposition by craft. And so you start, you could, you know, you probably preach a sermon on every one of those, you know, right. Mm-hmm. And so you face opposition in everything, in every corner and every aspect of life. But what do you have to do? Well, you do exactly what they did. You just buckle down. And you, you focus on what's important. Right. And uh, Absolutely. we go through different seasons and then you still have to just buckle down and, and you know what, I'm going to live for God. No matter how busy I am, I'm going to set aside this much time to pray, this much time to read my Bible. And there you go. Hmm. Absolutely. I like that. I want to preach that on Tuesday. All right. I, I appreciate that. Also, as a side note this week, I just want to point out that this is actually a culmination of two weeks of Bible reading on the bread program. So if we are not delving in quite as much as normal, that is the reason why moving on to the book of Esther, just to give kind of a quick overview on it. It starts out in the book of Esther that there's a king at Paris and he's having a festival and, and all of a sudden they ask his queen Vashti to come out and entertain or showcase her beauty and yeah, it's, you know, it seems kind of materialistic or superficial, whatever. So Vashti, the queen, decides to rebel against the orders of the king. And some would say, well, that's great. That's women's rights. Um, but there's an issue. There, there's a problem that arises that uh, Hasuerus and his advisors see. And you can read that in Esther 1.17. For this deed of the queen shall come abroad unto all women so that they shall despise their husbands in their eyes when it shall be reported. And the king Ahasuerus commanded Vashti the queen to be brought in before him, but she came not. So obviously Vashti was respected by the women of the nation. She was perhaps a model of what they were to be. And they feared that when they saw Vashti's rebellion, that they would do the exact same thing to their husbands. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you know, about rebellious households. Thank the Lord we don't have that problem here. But anyways, um, yeah. but that, that becomes a huge issue, especially when you're talking about a whole nation. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyways, they set out to find a new queen, long story short. And so they end up with Esther, which I believe, of course, is the handiwork of God and time goes on and Esther and Mordecai, her uncle of so- or relative of sorts, maybe adoptive father, however you want to. I think uh, he's like her cousin or something. He is her cousin, but it seems like he must be older because he takes care of her. Like he's, right. child. Yeah, he's, he's obviously some kind of mentor in Esther's life. Somebody she looks up to respects, listens to, but anyways, they, they face a, foe and Haman I think you had already hit on it somebody there Mm -hmm. and so it comes to the point that the Jewish people their lives are at stake here they're facing a foe that wants to exterminate the Jewish people from the entire land and he does everything possible to destroy them talk about opposition but God miraculously uses Esther and her fearlessness and her obedience to overcome this situation and ultimately saves the Jewish nation, which is incredible. It's, it's a story here in the book of Esther that jam-packed full of action and drama. But I just want to cover real quick, and I'll, then I'll kick it over to Brother Seth here. But the impact of Esther's obedience 
In Esther chapter 2, verse 10, it reads, Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it. And then if we go down to verse 20, Esther had not yet showed her kindred nor yet people as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther did the commandment of Mordecai like as when she was brought up with him. There was something instilled in Esther from a young age to listen to Mordecai. Mordecai had instilled that into her, that obedience was a virtue that was important, that was mm-hmm. was vital. And it proves extremely vital in this situation, the story that Esther does not reveal herself too soon, but it's by obedience to Mordecai and the handiwork of God that it all works out beautifully. But there's, there's power in in obedience. And even though Esther, you know, towards the end of the book, she's facing possible death herself. She's risking her own life to save the Jewish nation, the Mm -hmm. Jewish people, but she risks her own life and her own reputation. She puts it all on the line for the sake of obeying the voice of God in her life, which was Mordecai. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really like you're talking about the impact of obedience and and really, like her obedience to Mordecai, as you were saying in, in chapter chapter four, verse 13 and on, it says, Then Mordecai commanded and to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? You know, this is the this is the scripture that we hear so often. But we have to understand that Good. this is the pivot point in this story. This is the this is the climax of the story. Is is Mordecai yeah. is is bringing to her the under like if you don't do it, God's gonna do it somewhere else. It's, it's interesting. God is never mentioned in Esther, but it's basically implied here in this verse that if you don't do it, God's going to raise up somebody else to do it. And you and your father's house are going to die. The important, right. the impact of obedience not only impacts those around, like I'm, mm-hmm. the words I want to say is like the nation around you, but it impacts also like your very family. It impacts yourself. We look at it, Esther's story as kind of like a big, a big picture type of thing, which it is. You know, that the that the Jewish nation as a whole was saved because of her obedience. But we also have to look at it is that she kept her family saved by doing what it is that she was commanded to do. The impact of obedience was not only far reaching, but also closely reaching. Think of your family. Think of your your friends. Think of your coworkers and how your obedience to the call of God, to the command of God how it will impact them. Right. You know, that's good. Um, That's really good. Let me, what, one, one thing I want to point out is the sharp contrast of obedience between Vashti and Esther. It's by disobedience that Vashti loses her crown, but it's by obedience that Esther obtains hers. Mm -hmm. And Esther 414, Jacob, as you were talking about, you know, I guess I, I read it, but I didn't really pay attention to it. You know, like those things that at camp, as Brother Romine said, those things you've, you've read, but not seen. Mm-hmm. Verse 14, for if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And then tying that in with obedience. What a beautiful parallel to preaching the gospel. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, I believe that, you know, God has sent certain people to certain cities to preach mm-hmm. the gospel. Yeah. And if they don't, God will send someone who will preach the gospel. Yep. And if you're not going to obey God and his word, woe to you, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. I, you know, I believe that's why Paul would say, woe to me if I preach not the gospel, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, you know, he had a, a commission to preach the gospel and he had to preach it in the same here. Uh, Esther had a, uh, a commission, a command, basically, to uh, help save the Jews and uh, and to do her part. But just, yeah, just, you know, what a, what a contrast. God would raise up somebody to deliver his people. Yeah. And then Esther and her home would be destroyed. I could tell a story I heard from, you know, we know Brother Bobby Kelman in North Dakota District uh, mm-hmm. from Indiana Bible College, the Dean of Biblical Studies. But he, he was telling a story. He said one time there was this couple that God had told to go, I think it was in Tennessee or somewhere to that effect, to go and plant a church. 
and they went to that city, you know, they were praying about it and, and, you know, they knew it was the will of God and there was a home that they had found in that city that they wanted to buy and they were going to, you know, they, 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 were, they were all set to go. Well, then something happened. There was this home that they were going to buy in that city and on and on. Everything was lined up, but something happened. I don't know if they got offended or something, and they mm. ended up not going. And God had reserved that city for them. And he said, to this day, and this was like several, several years ago, that house never sold. Mm. It was always sitting there empty. And that city still doesn't have a church. You know, wow. it's, it's like, you know what I mean? But I mean, some one of these days, God's going to send somebody to that city. But it was just yeah. powerful. What a powerful illustration. You know, that house is still empty. And it's been years and years, you know, since God mm -hmm. called that one couple to that city. This is just kind of a neat parallel, I thought. Hmm. That's interesting. That's really neat. It's written in the book of Esther, chapter 4, 16. Kind of, you can kind of see Esther's attitude, her, her character. Brother Seth, will you want to expound upon that? Yeah. You know, Esther realized her duty was to do her part to save her people. You know, we just talked about 14, you know, she, she had a little bit of incentive. It was like, look, my, my whole home household is going to be destroyed if I don't. Mm -hmm. But I think, I think she thought bigger than this. Like she wasn't like just right. afraid that her home was going to be destroyed. Her household was going to be destroyed, but mm -hmm. she was really afraid for her people. And so in verse 16, and we'll let's start 15. Then Esther bade them return Mordecai this answer. Go gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast ye for me and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also, my maidens, will fast likewise and so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. Well, obviously, if you read through the book of Esther, we know that, you know, you could you could approach the king, but if he did not extend his golden scepter to you, 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 were, you were to die. Mm -hmm. You know, so this is really, it's kind of a big deal, yeah. you know, and, and here she's like, you know, and if I perish, I perish. If I die, I die, you know, but I'm mm -hmm. going to do my part. And uh, I think that's just what a, what a great attitude of humility, you know, and s sacrifice. Like I'm going to do my part. And so you see the character of Esther. I think what a parallel in scripture, like Romans five, seven, talking about Jesus dying for the ungodly. And then, but Romans 5, 7 says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. And so this is Esther. Like, like she is doing this very commendable thing. She, mm -hmm. she is putting her life on the line for her nation. And, you know, obviously we honor that. We have our veterans of the, you know, the United States, though I, would, I, I don't think I would ever be one. And I hope to never be one. But, you know, we honor those people. Why? Because mm -hmm. that's commendable. That's courageous. That's that's a big deal. But here she's doing it. She could have just stepped back and just been like, you know what, whatever, you know, and, and I'll live my comfortable life and it'll be good. And, and, you know, well, if my nation perishes, you know, I'll have a good life. But no, mm -hmm. what's selflessness? And and you, you, you begin to look throughout the scripture. This is a theme. I don't know. If, I think we all know this, right? Like as Christians, that's right. our calling. Like we. we yeah lay our life down for the yeah. greater calling of God, the greater sacrifice of reaching our world. And then, you know, what a parallel where, where Paul, I was, just, I was reading it and I was like, wow, this is a perfect parallel between that, uh, between Paul, you know, in Acts 21 and 13, Paul was, you know, he's, he's talking about going to Jerusalem. He's got this prophet uh, that's like, look, like, look, you're going to get bound. You know, you're going to get delivered in the hands of the Gentiles. You're going to be, you know, all these bad things are going to happen to you. But, and Paul's like, look, he's like, I, I, I'm ready to be bound. Mm -hmm. But he said, but I'm also ready to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And it's like, what a perfect attitude of sacrificing. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what every one of us has to do. Obviously, uh, you know, right now, none of us or even like none of you listeners or none of us four guys have to like, n none of us are like facing death because uh, of sharing the gospel. But maybe that'll come someday. But then also, too, we have to give our lives in such a way that at the end of our life, we're going to be like, you know what? We did lay down our lives for this gospel. We gave everything for it mm -hmm. and uh, and just having that right attitude. You kind of were taking the words right out of what I was wanting to say yeah. as response, because, you know, it's really her what you'd said. Her attitude is such an attitude that we as the church really need that, you know, it doesn't matter what God calls me to. It doesn't matter where he wants me to go, 
I will go no matter the consequence. It's an attitude that really we need to have every day. If God wants me to walk into this burning building to save someone's soul, then I will do it because God wants me to kind of an attitude. Right. And it's really, it's something to aspire to. Yes, it is. That's so good that you had pointed out there, there's so much power when, when somebody realizes that God has made them for a specific purpose, mm-hmm. whether it's Esther, whether it's Paul, the apostle or, or whoever, each one of us has a purpose to accomplish in this life. And of course, that starts with submitting ourselves under the will of God. But I think a lot of people in our world today are missing fulfillment and satisfaction because they're, they're trying to do things their own way. And they're thinking small-minded about perhaps just themselves right. when really God has a part for each individual's life in the broader scheme of eternity. And I love how Esther just, she just does it. Like she's such an example for us today of ourselves willingly. Mm-hmm. Can I um, can I interject? Yeah. I'll, I'll just, sorry. I mean, you know, like, I don't think anybody can mention Esther in this, particularly at this point without mentioning Jesus Christ, right? Like the alt, <laughs> like the, yep. I was <laughs> sorry, just, yeah. you know, like, uh, oh my bad. You know, that's, <laughs> but that's, that's like, uh, what was it? Peter talks about he was our example we should follow in his footsteps you know he was our example of how to how to suffer for the sake of the gospel and then you look all of the apostles suffered for this thing and and you know we not scripturally the bible doesn't say that they 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 died but we know like you know historically and what's the other word i'm looking for tradition says you know every one of the apostles died in almost some brutal way except for john Mm mm-hmm because why? Because they believed in this gospel. Yeah. They were putting their lives on the line for this gospel. Even John, the revelator, that poor guy, <laughs> he got boiled in oil, you know, like, in oil. Yeah. Like, I think I'd rather have died, you know, like, mm-hmm. that. that's awful. Matthew ten thirty eight. He that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy mm-hmm. of me. And then in chapter 16, Jesus says to his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. I think one of the problems in modern Christianity, so many times we want to like remove the cross and and slip in a cushion when in reality, there's just no way around something. Sometimes we just have to, we we just have to bear our cross. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And that could be giving up our life for the, the sake of the gospel. Amen. Well, with that, we are going to jump into a quick ad break and we will be right back with part two. Hi, and welcome back to Scripture Unleashed. We are going to go to the New Testament. Paul has written a letter to Titus, Brother Seth. Yes. And in in, uh, the book of Titus is just a short little book, three chapters long. But actually, I think like I'm kind of one of those black and white people. I like things just spelled out and kind of plain, clear cut. Can we say it like that? And uh, Titus Mm -hmm. to me is probably one of my favorite books because it's like, look, this is what you need to do. Here it is. Bam. And so the book of Titus is like that. Paul uh, obviously is writing a letter to Titus and you begin to look through it. And it's just like Paul just lays out this beautiful like three chapters of this is how you need to be. And this is how the church needs to be. And this is how the elders of the church need to be. This is how the women in the church need to be. This is how the young men need to be. This is how the old women need to be. This is how the young ladies need to be. This is, you know, and I, I like that. I like black and white. Like here it is, you know, you read mm-hmm. Titus one, the elders are supposed to be a certain way. You read Titus two, the old women are to teach the young women. And this is how the servants are supposed to live. And the young men are supposed to live. And this is how, and then I love, he, he nestles it in there. This is how grace works. And I think we might get to that here, but, and then, you know, he continues like, look, as a pastor, this is what you need to do. You know, and Paul even throws in the plan of salvation in, in Titus three, three through five, six. And, and then, you know, it's just, you know, it's just a little bit of theology, but mostly like, this is how we need to live. He wraps it up, you know, talking about avoiding these foolish questions, avoid things that are just going to lead to contention and strife. And, and then there are those people that obviously reject the word of God and, and you know what, reject them. And then, you know, he ends it just by his normal, like, Hey, you know, let this person 
you know, greetings and bring these people with you when you come, that type thing. And, and then also, I like how Paul ends it. He says in verse 14 and 15, and let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses that they be not unfruitful. All that are with me, salute thee, greet them that love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. And uh, just a great book. Thank you, Brother Seth. Uh, yeah, one of the things you had pointed out was Paul is simply laying out expectations all throughout the, the book here, the letter. The one, one thing that I found interesting was in verse 5 of chapter 1. He says, For this cause left I in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. And then he goes and kind of lays out the expectations for the elders. Sometimes in, in our day or in, in the church or in our movement today, we can have a mindset elders as simply you know, who, whoever is the oldest individual. But, I mean, if that was the case, all they would have to do is look at each other and be like, well, are you, how old are you? Mm-hmm. But, but here Paul says to Titus, you, you need to ordain elders. You, you need to set this up. And there's a certain character. There's a certain expectation that we must have as Christians of what an elder should be. And then I believe the elders in this verse it translates to, I think it's presbyteros, the Greek word there. But it basically just means an overseer, uh, a member, uh, an official. Mm. So he designates, this is Paul's idea of what a church should be. There, there needs to be organization. There needs to be some kind of not necessarily a pecking order, that sounds kind of bad, but there should be a natural flow of authority, even in the local church. Mm-hmm. And so he goes on to say in verse seven, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God. Well, we'll start up at verse six. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God. Think about a steward. Mm. That is someone that takes care of someone else's stuff. We are stewards of God. So what God has given us, we, we have to have that mindset. And then, of course, he embellishes a little further. What kind of mindset? Not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre. And it, and it goes on, lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just. Here's a big one, holy, mm-hmm. temperate. We have to be holy as God is holy. Mm -hmm. Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort, and I like this, and to convince the gainsayers. To be able to convince somebody, number one, you have to be convinced. Mm -hmm. But number two, you have to spend time studying what you're talking about so you're able Mm -hmm. to convince somebody. You have to know the subject is good. Yeah. Um, and so, so I just, I just love the book of Titus, especially this, this area of ordaining elders. He, he just, like Brother Seth had mentioned, is he just sets out expectation. So many times, you know, even in that movement, people just want a license. Like, oh yeah, just let me have a license and I'll go preach mm. willy nilly here and there. And but Paul writes that there's a certain criteria that you need to fit. And I'm humbled when I read this because. Not every single one of these character traits are exactly easy. Right. Yeah. You know, what does it mean to be holy? Wow. I mean, just right there, that is, is huge. Mm-hmm. I feel like someone else might want to interject. You could preach a message. Not just preach a message. You could live a message off of each word there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, every yeah. one of those is a full is a full biblical study Yeah. through the scriptures. I mean, to be all of these things in one mm-hmm. is, is, is to be a Christian. <laughs> yeah, at its truest, you know, I mean, yeah. that is the vaguest statement in the world, but it's a truest statement that, you know, you could come up with. Like every one of these are powerful things that if you are practicing in your life, like people are going to notice. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I can't say I've nailed all these down yet in my life. You know, I, I can say like, you know, I, I know I struggle with getting soon angry. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, like I get frustrated really quickly, even working like, you know, I own my own business or whatever, but. You know, like if somebody can't do something, I, I get like really frustrated. Cause I'm like, I know I can do this, and, you know, and I'm mm. like, come on, you know, and, and uh, you know, and I'm like not giving a wine. Okay, that one's easy because I just don't do that. No striker. I, I don't really fight people. I guess that's kind of my understanding of that. But I mean, I, I mean, 
But here's not, it's not confession time, right? But anyways, like, you know. <laughs> well, we, I thought it was. <laughs> yeah, you know. But I mean, I mean, for, like, these are powerful and without the Holy Ghost, without the Spirit of God, impossible. Mm-hmm. I really love the black and whiteness of this, of the, the, like, this is what we need to do. And Anthony, mm-hmm. how would you say it? It's like he's encouraging or he's, it wasn't necessarily. Yeah, he's like setting expectations. expectations. Like, what? yeah, that that's exactly yeah. like, this is how, you know, it's both command and an expectation. Like this, if you're a bishop, this is how you should be. And like, man, how hard is that? You know, you measure up to these things. And I can't say I always just a lover, a lover of hospitality. Like there's times I, I don't want people to come over to my house. But at the same time, this is an expectation. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I can say I've run into these people, especially, you know, in our church in Dickinson. It was no accident that these people are like this way. But I can mention several elders by name. And yeah, a lot of them are older, you know, 50s, 60s. But at the same time, they're elders because they have these qualifications to be elders. Right. And, uh, right. and I, I think bishop would be what more of like a pastor. Is that right? But yeah, I can tell you this, that my pastor mm-hmm. has these traits. It's just like when you see these in action, it's, it's powerful. It's it's a witness that is amazing. Anyway, Yeah. And, you know, there's one thing that's interesting is that this is a command that Paul is writing to Titus. He's telling him when you ordain elders, look for these traits. And he also writes something similar to Timothy in First Timothy 5, verse 22. He says, lay hands suddenly on no man. And... To my understanding, from what I've studied, is he's talking about giving people authority, ordaining elders, laying your hands upon them, like, suddenly. Right, Uh, Basically, you need to try them. You need to know that they will be fit for that position. Yeah, and so, like, this is something that you two pastors, I don't really want to say it like that, but that you guys, as you build the churches in your respective cities... You need to pay attention, like not to, you know, somebody, sure, they might be able to help. But before just laying on them, you know, here, I'm going to make you my assistant pastor here. I'm going to make you the youth leader. Like you need to make sure to know that they have these attributes that you need to have here. Right. Right. And uh, that's a that's a lot to live up to, you know, but at the same mm-hmm. time, it's a good measuring stick. You know? right. like, and, you know, here's the thing, like Paul doesn't cover everything. Mm-hmm. There's more that, you know, the. uh hmm. You you can you can follow the law of this letter, but if you have the spirit of this letter, you're going to far exceed all of these things. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? These are just these are just very not vague, but vague in a sense of like it doesn't nail down that what what, what does it mean to be a lover of hospitality? You know, it's like what does that mean? You know, mm-hmm. like what does that mean? You know, but in culture, it might be like you know in America or Southwest North Dakota, like somebody comes to your house. First of all, they came to your house. You know, you're like being hospitable. You know, you can apply these this way. Does that mean like offering them a cup of coffee? Does that mean, you know, you know what I mean? I, yeah. you know, there, there's more to it than just that. But I'm just saying like the, the spirit will take you far above these commandments. Right. And, uh, and loving people. But, and, oh, well, biblically, it would be wash their feet. But yeah. 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 I know what you mean. <laughs> exactly. In our day, it'd be like, sit back, recline. So in Titus chapter <clears throat> two, verses nine through 10. It reads, exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior in all things. Brother Seth. Yeah, uh, I'll be short. Uh, So that word exhort simply means to urge strongly or to, uh, you know, kind of entice by argument or advice. So exhort, encourage your servants to be obedient to their own masters and please them well in all things, not answering again. Don't talk back, okay? Mm. This punk mentality of our day where people are like, well, you can't tell me what to do. Actually, no, they're your, they're, they're your boss. They can tell you what to do. Mm-hmm, That's how that works. you know. But anyways, you're not answering again. And then these, uh, verse 10, not purloining, or, or basically I think the uh, modern word be like, don't embezzle. Don't, don't be fraudulent with, you know, what they've entrusted you with, but showing all good fidelity or faithfulness that they may adorn who the, that be the servants to those masters, or we could say those employees to those employers, mm-hmm. um, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our savior in all things. And, and, uh, that word, I, you know, I've read it in the NIV, not that I'm a big believer in the NIV, obviously, 
I've, I've slammed it several times, but uh, sometimes it is good for a, a uh, maybe a more modern translation on a verse. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it says, so that in every way they will make, this is verse 10, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. How do they do that? Not embezzling, but showing good faithfulness to their master, to their mm-hmm. to their bosses. And we want to make the teaching of God, our Savior, attractive to yeah. the world. You know, I, you know, I grew up in, in, uh, in Arkansas, okay, and there was... Some Pentecostals, and they got a bad rap. You know, how did you know uh, the, the little old lady was Pentecostal? Or how did you know she was Bible Baptist? And if, if she was Pentecostal, she had this big, you know, frown on her face. And that's, you can make the <laughs> distinction. That's not a good thing. Like, no. I, that's, we, we, my sister and I would be like, well, that's how you know the difference. And it was like, well, the ones weren't grumpy and the other one doesn't, you know. Yeah, bad. Jacob, the one wasn't. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, you know, it was like, that's how we're supposed to be. You know, we're supposed to make the, the doctrine of God, our Savior, attractive and, and mm-hmm. by our lifestyle, by our conduct, by how we act. And, and uh, so as employees, obviously, in America, we uh, in the United States, we don't have slaves in this sense, but we're servants. Really, I guess maybe we do have paid servants, but make the doctrine of God attractive by your lifestyle of faithfulness. Right. Yeah, and uh, and there you go. End of the thought. Let's go over to Philemon, brother Jacob. Yeah, so Philemon, 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 however you want to pronounce it, or Philemon. This is like a super <laughs> short letter. It's only twenty five verses long, but it has a lot of history that probably is behind it. And one of the things is that we see here is Paul is writing to Philemon about Onesimus, who was a uh, one of Philemon's slaves who had run away. And more than likely what had happened is Paul is, I believe, at this point in prison in Rome during the two-year period. And he is met by this man named Onesimus, who somehow had fled to Rome, had gotten to Rome from Colossae. That's where Philemon's from. And he is trying to hide out here. Well, it was Roman law that any servant, any slave that was found would be imprisoned and then returned to their master, their owner. And Paul sends him with this letter saying that, you know, Onesimus, whose name means useful, has become useful to me. It's like, you know, he wasn't useful to you at one point, but he's useful to me now. And basically writes this entire letter to try and have Philemon forgive Onesimus because Onesimus at this point is now a Christian just like Philemon is. And it's interesting that Onesimus, after this, he's mentioned again in the letter to Colossae, and he's traveling with Tychicus on the way to Colossae. So more than likely, Onesimus is freed at that point. Philemon might have freed him because he was now a Christian or whatever the case may be. But so it's believed that Onesimus, in history even, that he became the bishop of Ephesus after Timothy. So this really shows how somebody who, according to this letter, was useless could become useful in the kingdom of God. That's good preaching. For the sake of time, you have to go to the book of Job. There's a lot of stuff to cover, but we don't have much time. Brother Jacob, can you go over that? Yeah, let me flip over there real quick. So the book of Job is actually believed to be the oldest book in the Bible. According to when it was written down, it would have been recorded before even Moses recorded the first five books of the Bible. But the story would have been sometime in between there, because when you go through Job, you see and you notice, especially in the beginning first chapters, the law is not in effect yet. His sons would always have a feast on their day, which I assume is their birthdays. Chapter 1, verse 5. And it was so when the days of their feastings were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. So this is clearly not according to the law that Job is offering for his children's sins. You know, he's making sacrifices for his children. So this is another reason why we can show that this book is actually before the law. But it's interesting is that as you go through Job, there comes a point, we'll notice it next week because we'll hit it, I believe, more. 
But as we go through Job, we notice that there comes this person that begins to speak who wasn't mentioned in the beginning, Elihu. Yeah, in chapter 32, he was not one of the three friends that were mentioned in the beginning. And it's believed that Elihu is actually the author, the person who wrote down the story of Job. And he interjects at this point, as it says, so these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, of the kindred of Ram. Against Job was his wrath kindled because he justified himself rather than God. So Elihu interjects here into the story. And the reason why this is thought that he interjects here is if you go to where his words end, chapter 38 is when God begins to speak again. If you were to take out chapters 32 through 37, the narrative flows. Basically, Job ends his words and immediately, if you jump to 38, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, and so Elihu here, his, his words that he is interjecting here, he is fighting on behalf of God. I know it's kind of interesting the fact that he just jumps in out of nowhere. So more than likely, Elihu is the writer of Job. He's the one who finally penned down this book. To our next topic, we, we have to talk a little bit about the patience of Job through his enormous trials. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, Job went through a lot in his lifetime. That's for sure. You know, we see how Job, Job went from being very rich to uh, having sons and daughters, seven sons and three daughters, to be precise. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels. He just had a very great household, the Bible says, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. Job was very, very wealthy, but he was a righteous man. You know, the story of Job is very interesting how it's just really interesting how that God says to Satan, you see Job, you see how Job's serving me? And of course, the devil's like, well, he's only serving you because of what he's got, of what you've given him. And God says, no, if I took everything away from Job, he'd still serve me. And the devil's like, give me a shot at this. You know, and I'm just paraphrasing, but, but basically the devil causes Job to lose his family, every, everybody except his wife, and everything he's got, just all his kids die in one day, like right after the other, all these things happen. And then after this, Job, you know, his wife told Job, curse God and die. And he's like, you're speaking like a foolish woman. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> he said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. You know, that's probably, but blessed be the name of the Lord. And that's where, that's where we get that song. But anyway, and then... The devil tells God, well, you know, if I afflicted Job's body and, and God says, OK, we'll do whatever you want, but just don't kill him. And, uh, you know, this interaction between God and the devil is interesting to me. But anyway, be that as it may, Job gets very, very sick. It spoils on his body and he still doesn't curse God and die. I mean, Job goes through some major, major depression and you could see why. I mean, this is a bad deal. Job's mm -hmm. three friends come with him, and the Bible says that they sat with Job for seven days and seven nights and didn't speak one word because Job's grief was so great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like somebody's grieving, and, and sometimes, you know, you don't even know what to say. I'm just here. You know, I don't, I don't know what to say to you. This is bad. But anyway, so Job went through a lot, and I'm just going to wrap this up with scripture found in the New Testament. James chapter 5, verse 11. Behold, we count them happy which endure. All right, let me read verse 10. Take, my brethren, the, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. I don't mm. think that it's a good possibility that none of us who are doing the podcast or listening to the podcast have been through what Job's been through, you know, but we do go through things in life. I don't think any <laughs> again, you know, and it's possible that somebody maybe will, and I hope no one does that's listening, but just consider Job's patience, you know, consider, consider the patience of the prophets who suffered affliction and consider the end of the Lord, you know, just consider you have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful of tender mercy and we don't want to get into the end of job just yet because uh, mm -hmm. that's not our reading this week but but i'm sure next week we'll we'll hit on that as well real quick before we close today in our episode psalms 78 spoke to me which i thought was really 
powerful. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the word of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. And when they write dark sayings of old, they mean what they're alluding to is that these are deep sayings. These are sayings to study out. These are things you need to read with care, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and its wonderful works that he hath done. Verse 5, for he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children. Why? That they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright, and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. One of the things in scripture that is so important is that we pass down what we know and what we learned of God to our next generation, to our children, so that they might pass it down to their children and so on and so forth. To know the word and to have that in your heart and to live a life that, that backs that up is absolutely essential in living for God and it's absolutely crucial to the generations to right. come. Yeah. It's something that, that really we all, especially in Christianity, it's something, you know, that's mentioned quite a bit that we could lose this apostolic faith in one generation. If the generation before ceases to right. tell well, we, the next generation, it's gone. Absolutely. Well, or we talked about it earlier in the first half about people like Nehemiah and Esther that stood in the gap between one generation and the next, Mm -hmm. literally laying down their lives for the preservation of truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. That's, that's good. Well, listener, that's all the time we have this week. Uh, Did we not cover something that jumped out to you? Do you have any advice or word of encouragement? Just go ahead and let us know by sending us a voice message through anchor.fm. Or go to our Scripture Unleashed Facebook page and message us there. We hope you've enjoyed this week's episode, and we look forward to having you with us next week as we go through Job 13 through 33 and Psalm 85 through 88. God bless. Thank you for listening. This has been Scripture Unleashed.